0: Continue our sermon study in 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, there's a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed at the top of that as well. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Michael Paternity shares this story of visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. He says when he was there, every day he would watch this elderly woman with a cane take a long walk down the road, up the hill, to a cemetery. And then she would return home. And because of her turtle pace with a cane, it was about a six-hour trip from home to the cemetery and back. And he wondered what would inspire a woman, an elderly woman like this, to make this trip every day. Was this a deceased husband? Was it a deceased child? And as he asked the village people, they said, no, it's not that. They said, this woman is consumed by what they called a bitter hatred her arch enemy was buried in that cemetery. And she took to every day, making sure that she could go up and spit on the grave one last time. Now, I don't know that anybody in here is daily, weekly, maybe even annually going to a seminary. seminary. That's a slip, a poor slip. I did it in the first service too. I don't know what's going on in my heart. I don't know any of you that go to a cemetery to spit on an enemy's grave. But I do know that all of us can be consumed with bitterness and bitterness towards people who are hard to love. John writes to a church that has split It's a church of hatred. It's a church of division. It's a church where gossip and slander has happened. There's name calling from both groups. And yet John doesn't let his readers turn to cynicism or to bitterness. He calls them to love one another. Even if it means loving the unlovable and that person who is hard to love. So it begs the question how do you love people who are hard to love? How do you love the unlovable? First, you have to understand the cause of hatred the cause of not loving people well. John takes us to the story of Cain in Genesis 4 to explain the cause of hatred. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In Genesis 4, we learn that our first parents, Adam and Eve, had two sons, Cain and Abel. And both sons brought offerings to God. God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. And Cain, because his offering was rejected and his brother got the approval from God, became very angry and ended up murdering his brother. Now, the question is why? Why did Cain murder Abel? Well, John begins to give us the answer, right? When he says in verse 12, it's because Cain's deeds were ab- or evil and Abel's deeds were righteous. But that begs the question, why were Cain's deeds evil and why were Abel's deeds righteous? Hebrews chapter 11 begins to answer the question further. Hebrews eleven four 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's offering was by faith. Cain's was not. So if Cain's offering was not by faith, then what was it? Then what was it? Though Cain Brought an offering before God, ultimately, Cain was offering to himself. Cain was seeking to get something from God through his offering. Cain was seeking to, to purchase something from God. And when he didn't get it, and his brother did, he was filled with anger and envy, and he murdered his brother. Cain's offering was transactional. It was no different than when you go to the store and purchase something. But Cain didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get the approval of God. Cain's offering was transactional. Abel's offering was relational. Abel offered to God to get God not to get something from God. Now, you say, well, what does this have to do with the cause of hatred? Well, John's example of Cain can be summed up this way. Religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. Let me take it a step further as it relates to hatred. Religious people find other people useful, Christians find other people beautiful. The root cause of hatred is the objectification of people, people become objects. They become useful that either help you get what you want or they get in the way of what you want. And the objectification of human beings begins with the objectification of God. When you find God useful and not beautiful, you will find people useful and not beautiful. This explains why there are so many hateful acts throughout the centuries of history in the name of religion. That when you objectify people and they don't give you what you want, then you discard them. When they don't further your agenda, you discard them. John actually uses stronger language than discard. He says you murder them. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, so that you don't let yourself off the hook because you've never murdered anyone. Let me take you to Jesus' description of murder in Matthew chapter five, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Physical murder is just the sprouting of the seed of anger. So anger in the heart is a murdering of someone, and it happens in one of two ways. Either you murder people with your thoughts or your words in the form of gossip or slander, Or you murder someone by abandoning them in bitter resignation. And both are forms of anger and hatred. And you do that when someone is useful, when you've objectified them. And when by their actions and words they don't get you what you want, then you murder them. Your coworker or your boss is keeping you from getting a promotion. Your child is keeping you from getting rest. Your spouse is keeping you from getting the pleasure and comfort that you want. Your friend is keeping you from an impeccable reputation through their gossip and their slander objectification. God is useful, not beautiful. People are useful, but not beautiful. And what happens when you begin to objectify people is you begin to dehumanize them. And that's why John talks about death in this passage. Verse 14, when he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Hatred, the result of objectification, dehumanizes. That's why John says the, the primary evidence or sign of conversion, of someone coming to trust in Jesus Christ and to pass from death to life, the primary sign of that is that God is no longer found as useful, God is found as beautiful and people are no longer found as useful they're found as beautiful husbands are your wives useful to you or are they beautiful to you wives Are your husbands useful to you, or are they beautiful to you? Employers, are your employees useful to you, or are they beautiful to you? Medical workers, are your patients useful to you, or are they beautiful to you? Teachers, in the last couple weeks of school, are your students useful to you or are they beautiful to you? How do you love people who are hard to love, who are unlovable? First, you understand the cause of hatred. But second, you understand the expression of love. What is the cure for hatred? We're in this heightened cultural moment of division and hatred. But there's nothing new under the sun. We always love to think our cultural moment has never been experienced before, but that's never true. John is writing to a church in the first century who has been racked by division and hatred and name-calling, The first century was covered over in hatred. In fact, there's a man who wrote in the first century. His name was Seneca. He wrote in 50 AD. That's roughly 20 years after the death of Christ. Listen to what he said about humanity. He said, hatred of the human race seizes us because of the corruption and foolishness we see on every hand. That's 50 AD. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, Seneca's solution for the hatred was basically a strategy of contempt. This is what he said. Laugh, scoff, and be cynical. That was his cure for hatred. Just be cynical. Cynicism. John gives a very different solution to hatred in this passage. It's not cynicism. He says in verse 16, By this we know love, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. The cure for hatred is looking at the death of Jesus Christ and studying it looking at the death of Christ and studying it. In verse 16, when it says that by this, we know love. We know, that's one of eight perfect tense forms of to know in the book of 1 John. It means a full and settled experiential knowledge of the sacrificial love of Christ. That in his full humanity, Christ was mocked, he was slandered, he was name-called, and he was rejected. And how did he respond to the name-calling? How did he respond to the mockery? How did he respond to the rejection? With love that cost him his very life. With love, hatred only intensifies as you look at the person who has kept you from getting what you want. Hatred dissipates when you look at the death of Christ and study it and meditate on it and realize that your offensive sin towards Christ Brought the response of love from Christ, a great act of self sacrifice. John defines love in this passage through the death of Christ in a very countercultural way. Love is not a feeling, it's not a feeling. It's accompanied by feelings, but love is not. A feeling. It is an act of giving yourself to the good of another. That's what love is. Verse 16 we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John gets very practical with love here. In our world that talks about love in a a syrupy or or emotional or romantic or kind of abstract way, John says, no, love is an act of giving yourself to the good of another. Look at what he says. If anyone has the world's goods, that just means if anyone is safe and secure, and you see a brother in need, meaning there's a brother or a sister who is not safe and secure. He says, if you close your heart against that person, meaning if you refuse to experience and understand what they're going through, he says, how does God's love and abide in you. Biblical love is giving up your safety and security to bring safety and security to someone else. Bruce Waltke says it this way. The very definition of righteous people, meaning those who have God's love abiding in them, is that they disadvantage themselves to advantage others. While the wicked, meaning those who do not have God's love abiding in them, are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Jean Vanier, he was the founder of L'Arche Communities, which were basically, basically gospel communities for people with intellectual disabilities. He tells this story of a couple that he knew that lived in Paris. The husband was a very, very successful businessman. Very busy, traveling a lot, making a lot of money, just a super successful businessman. And then his wife became sick with Alzheimer's. And he was talking to this man, and when his wife fell sick, he said this, I just couldn't put her into an institution. So I kept her. I fed her. I bathed her. So Vanier eventually went to Paris to visit this couple. and he went to this man who had been a very very successful businessman and this is what the man said i have changed i have become more human now we're back to objectification notice how this man described his transformation began seeing people as beautiful not useful Saw his wife as beautiful, not useful. Gave up his safety and security to bring safety and security to her, serving and loving others at great cost to self. Now, the more obvious application of this is meeting someone's physical or material need. But right, you have the world's goods and you see someone who has physical or material need, you generously give to them and provide for them. That's the more obvious application coming out of this. That's one I probably don't have to explain much because it's so obvious. But there's a less obvious application that comes out of this passage. When John says you see a brother or a sister in need, There is physical need, there's material need, but there's also emotional need. What does it look like to love someone who is struggling emotionally? Most often, the way we love someone who is struggling emotionally, who is in a Uh, The proverbial ditch is that we come to them and we try to fix them, to fix it, to offer a solution, to to, to let a rope down into the ditch to get them out. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with giving counsel to someone who is struggling emotionally, but I would say a vast majority of the time when we try to fix someone who's struggling emotionally, we do it because we want to move on. We want to fix them and move on to do what we want to do. We don't want to get down in the ditch. And yet the call to love sacrificially is to think comfort first, fix it second. Comfort first, meaning I get down in the ditch. I lose my comfort to get in the mud with that person. I give up my comfort to get down and be with them, to listen, to sympathize, to ask questions, to simply be with them, to give up the two hours that night that I had planned to do something else. Husbands, what I'm about to say to you I say first to myself because I'm the chief of sinners in this area. Husbands, quit trying to fix your wives when they are struggling emotionally. Think comfort first. Think comfort first. Get in the ditch with them. Get in the mud with them. Be with them. That's loving sacrificially. How do you love people who are unlovable or hard to love? First, you understand the cause of hatred. Second, understand the expression of love. But finally, understand the need for assurance. In the wake of this stern command from John against the hypocrisy of a do-nothing love, against the uh, indictment to not see people as useful, but to see them as beautiful, John gives some much-needed assurance. And you're probably thinking right now, amen, I need some assurance. Convicted deeply of not loving well, of not loving sacrificially, John says, let me bring some assurance here. Verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. John assumes that the people he's writing to, including us today as we read this letter of his, that at this point we are weighed down. Maybe with shame, guilt over not loving well, not sacrificially loving well, of treating people as objects, as useful and not beautiful, treating God that way. And so he brings this assurance. When your heart condemns you, where do you turn? That's the question. When your heart condemns you, where do you turn? Not inward. You don't start arguing with your heart. Say, no, no, I really did love that person sacrificially no, I mean, I'm really loving my spouse sacrificially. I'm not, no, you don't argue with your heart or say, well, I know, but man, look at my circumstances. Start offering excuses. It's like, the, it's like the courtroom setting. You know in a courtroom when the prosecuting attorney has a witness on the stand and they start harassing and badgering the witness? What's the opposing attorney say at that point? Objection, your honor. And then what does the judge do? He has two choices. He either says objection overruled, which means prosecuting attorney, keep asking your questions. Witness, you need to answer. Or the judge says objection sustained, which means prosecuting attorney, quit that line of questioning. Witness, you don't have to answer it. When your heart condemns you like a prosecuting attorney, harassing you. Jesus defends you. And God, so to speak, pounds the gavel and says, objection sustained. Jesus at the right hand of God intercedes for you and reminds you there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Yes, there's conviction, but no condemnation. They're very different. Condemnation sends you into a downward spiral of depression. Conviction sends you to repentance and joy to move on. When your heart condemns you, where do you turn? Not inward, but outward and upward to God. God overrules the guilty verdict that your heart hands down, and he reminds you of your verdict, which is, Innocent because Christ has taken your guilt. And when you turn to God who is greater than your heart, and I love it when he says he knows all things. God knows everything about your heart. He knows motives in your heart that you may not even be aware of. He knows it all. And he defends you. But you're filled with confidence when you turn to God. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, where does the confidence come from? Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments. Well, what are those? They're defined in verse 23, two commandments. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, by trusting in Christ and loving one another, the two commandments again, by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Jesus Christ dwells in you by the Spirit, overrides the guilty verdict that your heart wants to crush you with, and empowers you to love sacrificially. But how? How does Jesus dwelling in you empower you to disadvantage yourself, something you would never do in your own strength? Your flesh would never disadvantage yourself. How does Jesus empower you to disadvantage yourself to advantage others? Let me give you two scenarios. I want you to imagine you have a kiddie pool in your backyard. This kiddie pool is full of water up to the top, but the hose is turned off, wrapped up. There's no more water going in this kiddie pool. What you have in there is all you have. Now, how would you play and interact in that pool? You'd play safe. Right, because you know that as, as you splash around and the water exits, there's no more water coming in. That's all you got. Let me give you a second scenario. Imagine that kiddie pool's in your backyard. It's full to the top. And now there's a hose in there turned on and the hose is running. So the water is just, you know, slowly overfilling, overflowing the edges. How would you play differently in that kiddie pool? Oh, you would go crazy. You'd splash and it wouldn't matter. Water f- comes out of the pool. There's more going in. You, y- y- because it's being replenished all the time. When you are actively and functionally trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are more than willing To lose earthly comfort. To lose earthly goods. To embrace earthly disadvantage because you're confident that Jesus will more than replenish what has been lost. Two questions. Who are the people in your life who are hard to love? Who are the people in your life who are hard to love? Second, what earthly good, what earthly comfort do you need to lose? Or what earthly disadvantage do you need to embrace to love them fully confident that Jesus Christ will replenish more than replenish what is lost. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we find you useful and not beautiful. We confess that we find other people useful, but not beautiful. Father, we confess that we have objectified people, dehumanized people, loved ones around us. And yet, Father, thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross and that by us gazing at the death of Christ and studying it and meditating on it, we find our hearts replenished with love to give at great cost to self. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your love to love those this week in our circles, in our spheres, who are hard to love. And when we fail, that you would give us the assurance that you're greater than our hearts. That when our hearts condemn us, that you would remind us there's no condemnation for those in Christ. There's conviction and repentance, but there's joy of moving forward. Father, make us a people who disadvantage ourselves to advantage those around us. And whatever we lose, whatever earthly comfort or good or whatever disadvantage we embrace, would you more than replenish what we have lost through the love of your Son? We pray this all in his name and for his sake, amen.